If you ever rented a DVD back in the 2000s, chances are you came across this ad. It's a 40-second long trailer that plays as soon as you pop the DVD in. There's no dialogue, and it jumps in between four different shots. Someone stealing a handbag, a TV, a DVD, and a car. You have these text frames that kind of cut in between that says, you wouldn't steal a car, you wouldn't steal a handbag, you wouldn't steal a television, you wouldn't steal a movie. This is Tom McDonald. Tom says the ad is actually centred around the young girl, shown sitting at her computer, downloading a movie. She is shown intercut with glimpses of the other crimes, at the very last moment, cancels that download, and leaves her room, picking up her school bag as she exits. And then it ends with this piracy. It's a crime. This was a hugely popular ad campaign created by the Federation Against Copyright Theft, or FACT, a trade organisation in the UK. And although it wasn't the first anti-piracy PSA to come out of FACT, it's the one that stuck in people's minds the most. This music is interlaced with these sounds of sirens, and there's blurred flashes of red and blue lights, and the angles are skewed, the faces are out of focus. Like, it's, it's very carefully constructed. Tom says the message behind the ad, to this day, comes across loud and clear. If you're a pirate, you're a criminal. It's trying to create that link between media piracy and criminality. But just because that's what fact is saying with this ad doesn't mean it's true. Is digital piracy entirely criminal? It depends. The narrative we're fed about piracy is a potent one. The pirate is a devious, morally corrupt criminal who doesn't care about you or the law. But realistically, the act of piracy dances around the law, where what is legal and what isn't isn't always clear. It's kind of in this murky grey area. And that's where a lot of piracy kind of exists, is in these grey areas of legal frameworks. The legal case against piracy argues that it hurts the author, the person or group of people who made what you're pirating. But on the show today, we'll be asking, do these laws only encourage piracy? And have we got the narrative of the digital pirate all wrong? This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Jake Morecambe. While today we think of piracy as digital burning CDs, downloading movies, torrenting. All of these technologies are still very new. James Meese, author of Authors, Users and Pirates, says piracy goes back way before digital technologies, to the days of the printing press. At that point in time, the pirates were the unlicensed printers. Printers of the written word, of texts, academic works, novels even newspapers, of which, up until this point, most people didn't have access to. For centuries, and it's so important to remember that 
the written word was constrained to, you know, books literally chained in libraries and monasteries. The ability to write was constrained very much to the upper class. With the printing press, this changed completely, which rattled those upper classes. Instead of people talking about issues, societal issues, people are reading about them in papers, people are going to coffee shops and talking about them. So the idea that this could be democratised was a real threat, the idea that ideas could spread freely. And, and, and if you're a particularly paranoid monarch or a monarch who's not sure about their position, you might be worried about this fermenting political discussion happening outside the auspices of your court. Around this time, while there were restrictions on what could and couldn't be copied, there were no laws targeting unlicensed printing. Until the Statute of Anne, the first ever embodiment of copyright. Out of that comes the Statute of Anne in 1710, which basically said authors have the rights to their work for 14 years, renewable for another 14 years. From this point on, copyright would set legal parameters around original works, dictating how they could be shared and who could access them. If we move forward to the late 19th century and early 20th, the pirates are people copying sheet music. A growing middle class, pianos start coming into homes. What's one way for the music industry to make money? Sheet music. So you better believe we're going to sell a lot of sheet music and make sure that anybody who's printing sheet music unlicensed or copying sheet music is dealt with. To the extent that they actually had people come into people's houses and, you know, break down doors and shut down sheet music printing. So this question of licensing and who's allowed to make money is essentially key to the question of the pirate. Tom McDonald says this idea of who's making the money feeds into the image of the pirate, where under copyright law, The pirate is essentially a parasite, leeching off of somebody else's work. A lot of it has to do with kind of the framing of piracy as detrimental to kind of Western economic prosperity. And a lot of this comes out of attempts to frame the pirate this way by industry lobbyists. Tom says this was perhaps clearest with the Betamax case. Sony's Betamax was one of the first video cassette recorders on the market. This meant, for the first time ever, you could record your favourite TV shows or movies as they went live and watch them at a later time. Obviously, this was great for the consumer, but many in the broadcast industries flipped, branding this as piracy. Jack Valenti long-time president of the Motion Picture Association of America and one of the most well-known pro-copyright lobbyists in history, despised the VCR. So you have this quote from Jack Valenti, who says, I say to you that the VCR is to the American film producer and the American public as the Boston Strangler is to the woman home alone. The Boston Strangler refers to a series of 13 murders that took place in Boston in the 1960s. And this isn't an isolated occurrence. You have later on this kind of linkage between piracy and human smuggling in the early 2000s, as well as shortly after 
uh, 9-11, you have this commentary that piracy is this music industry's own form of terrorism that they're fighting. So the intent to make it a moral issue is definitely demonstrated by kind of this rhetoric. But while framing piracy in this way, the idea that it's stealing the profits of the copyright holder, Tom says is super unclear. A lot of the research I'm aware of is in music, right? There's very conflicting research on whether piracy actually displaces sales or what economic impact it does have. And I think part of this is just because pirated flows of media are just very hard to track and govern with any degree of accuracy. But also, I think part of it, too, is this question of would pirates have actually bought the media in the first place? Tom leans towards no, they wouldn't on that one. As some of the pirates he spoke to when writing his thesis on digital piracy actively avoided paying for those works. There was one individual who was fairly influential who I called Edward. And Edward was very articulate. He had been engaging in piracy since the 80s, since almost the very beginning. And in our email discussions, I asked what kind of kicked off his practices. And for him, it was kind of limited funds. Raising a family was very expensive. And the problem was, is that that meant that he couldn't pay for entertainment and media, which in his opinion was often overpriced, even when money is plentiful. And he kind of takes it to a very political stance here by saying that I will not support any business which overcharges its customers. So it kind of is a political statement for him to engage in piracy, that it's contesting the control and the infrastructures of media content delivery that privilege the accumulation of capital. One of the things I try to do in the thesis is draw from this kind of deeper history of piracy. Drawing links between the enclosure in Britain and how that gave rise to maritime piracy. I'm referring to this period starting from kind of the medieval era and extending into the 18th century, where you have the enclosure of common lands. And what this does is this encloses property that was free for use for all members of the public. Uh, So for grazing, fishing, hunting, around the same time, the British government is trying to aspire towards becoming a maritime nation or a maritime state. And it's kind of this process of enclosure and the displacement of labor that creates this form of piracy in this context. Of course, that's simplifying it quite a bit, but this is something that comes from the work of James Boyle. James Boyle in 2003 writes a book, The Second Enclosure. You kind of have this parallel where you have the enclosure of the labor of people who are engaged in coding, who are engaging in digital production, that right around the 70s and the 80s, digital code becomes commodified and becomes a form of private property. And it's kind of out of this you have the start of piracy. Piracy as a political action where it's pushing against these private property norms and pushing back against the commodification of media and pushing for these ideas of a free internet, creating these new flows of media to try and move content more efficiently. And that's why I think it's useful to kind of think through digital piracy with 
examples drawn from maritime piracy, especially for the fact that there is this kind of element of resistance to mercantile capitalism that's at play here. While the narrative of the digital pirate paints a negative image, that they operate in these toxic networks, torrenting and illegally sharing files, it's this very practice that Tom believes pirates pride themselves on. But to them, it's something else. It's working together as a community to upload and share content freely. There's kind of almost a sense of a library at play here, where they're trying to build up this shared collection. Tom explains at times there's such a heavy emphasis on community that to get into these networks, you have to be interviewed. I also find it fascinating that they would hold an interview for someone to become part of that pirate community. Do you know how those how those so, happen? So it's very formalized. From my understanding, some have open invite periods where you can kind of apply for the chance to interview. Uh, there's some that have invite systems where you can have a, a friend who is already in the system that then you can request an invite from them. And there's there's also this really interesting kind of ethical obligation that's placed on the people who are inviting friends to the network that they only invite people that are actually going to be beneficial for this network. Ethics in a pirate network might mean uploading and seeding content often enough so that you're adding to the library. Seeding is when you upload a file and then enable it to be downloaded by others. This also kind of problematizes that idea that pirates are kind of just opportunistic. There are individuals that are definitely sinking a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money in some cases to keep this library alive. But this idea of a pirate community can easily be misread by others, especially the authors. In the same way there's a narrative around the digital pirate, there's also the narrative of the author. Authors are viewed as the creators, where copyright is the means to protect them from piracy. But James Meese argues that copyright is built on philosophical ideas that romanticise the author and their creative process. So this idea that there's an authorial labour, and once an individual works on something, they have a property right to it, is a kind of a, a long line of philosophical thought under, under copyright. There's also um, more European, Germanic ideas that you put a bit of yourself in your work. We say it all the time, people say that, but it's actually a kind of idea of legal thought to some degree, that there is a kind of right of personality within a work some sort of moral claim that an individual has and some sort of personal claim that an individual has to the work that they produce. Tom McDonald says these ideas of moral ownership are further enforced through pro-copyright campaigns. So there's one ad campaign that comes from Universal, which is called Stop Destroying the Band You Like. It's just an image of like a severed finger. And the idea is that by engaging in piracy, you're literally cutting the finger off of this artist who owns this content. But what these campaigns purposefully leave out is everything and everyone that's gone into making that work possible. And then you also have kind of this romanticization of the artist through uh, Virgin Radio's Say No to Piracy ad, where it's talking about this 
exact situation where this moment of genius kind of struck Amy Winehouse or Elvis Presley uh, or Marvin Gaye and how it's accompanied by this line that says, if you knew what went into it, you wouldn't steal it. And it's kind of this really ironic thing where the ads themselves are concealing all of the different things that go into the production. James Meese says there's a reason why the narrative of the author exists and a reason why it works. If you're being a cynic, economic interest to put the author forward, they're an emotional pull and you know, you make all of your economic claims under the frame of the author because the author is a much more sympathetic figure than large publishing house. Because copyright lobbyists pit the pirate against the author, Tom McDonald says many of those he spoke to for his thesis reject being called pirates altogether. Some of them completely did not agree with the use of the word piracy at all, as using that term connects to this cultural imaginary we have about pirates as these social bandits, as swashbucklers, where it's this mundane event that it's just something we do to keep in touch. But for others, there's a power in playing on this narrative. In a sense, the adoption of this term, taking on the mantle of the pirate, right, and connecting to that cultural imaginary is a way of showing kind of the fragility of the uh, copyright industries to kind of pin down this meaning of pirates as thieves. Most famously, the Pirate Bay has uh, for their logo, it's a pirate ship with the cassette tape and crossbones emblazoned right on the sail. And it's kind of this, this term that gets imposed on people who are sharing their media with each other through cassette tapes, through remixing, that then they kind of take and they remix themselves. And they turn it into this whole new meaning and then articulate it with this idea of social banditry. The term in which they've reclaimed themselves. Yeah. As an anthropologist, I'm, I'm of course, interested in kind of symbols and kind of the meaning that they're packed with, right? And so the Hydra, I think, is one symbol of piracy that maybe doesn't get as much uh, prominence as, say, kind of the swashbuckler pirate or the uh, cassette and crossbones, right? So one uh, prominent use of the Hydra figure comes out of the Pirate Bay. Whenever it shuts down, what happens is they start moving it to other domains. And as soon as they're shut down, they pop back up in another area, kind of like the mythical Hydra, right? You chop one head off to emerge. So do you think that sending the message, you can't kill us, piracy won't die? There's kind of this back and forth between industry and pirates where you have the introduction of these anti-piracy measures, right? So digital rights management, encryption, and of course the state's acting in this too by introducing legislation and through the courts by arbitrating disputes. I think it's a very complex and a very messy relationship that it certainly makes it very difficult for digital piracy to die. And I think as long as there are these inequalities of access to media made to fit within copyright law, it'll still be around. That being said, 
the push to end piracy lives on, where one of the most active efforts in recent times to kill it off is streaming. Do you see streaming as an attempt to control digital piracy? So I think Spotify uh, build itself at one point as kind of this anti-piracy alternative. And certainly YouTube later on would kind of take on this role of being this site where people could access it for free. So why would you bother pirating it? But then that process of developing these streaming services then opens up a whole other can of worms because you start running into issues of algorithmic platform management and how ads are matched to users and user data. And you mean in terms of those algorithms, meaning they would feed particular programs to you to watch based off your viewership of that streaming service? Yeah. So kind of the platform intentionally creates these flows of media. So we're kind of like binging on Netflix, right? The platform is set up to allow you to kind of autoplay through this set number of shows to keep you on the platform. And what's currently happening in the streaming ecosystem, so to speak, It's kind of this fracturing that I see going on where you have more and more services popping up that people have to pay a certain amount each month to each service, right? So uh, with Hulu, with Spotify, with Netflix, with Apple Music, with Tidal, with Disney Plus, which is coming out soon, I think kind of that fracturing of the streaming ecosystem may actually drive some people back to piracy because suddenly the allure of streaming that is cheaper than a cable package and that you can get Netflix cheaper than a cable package disappears when suddenly you have to pay for eight or nine different streaming services in order to be able to access that content and where you have so many different exclusives. By limiting it behind these streaming services, copyright holders want to maintain all that power. Yeah, and especially when we take into account the, I guess, the value of user data through these platforms where... Netflix, I believe, actually is judging based on usage what content to produce. And the act of logging in and watching content itself takes on a new value in digital capitalism and with platform capitalism. So the push towards these platforms, yeah, definitely. It does kind of contrast the projects of, say, the Pirate Bay. That question kind of comes up again about, well, should we be switching to more decentralized alternatives? at a time where privacy is such a concern and user data uh, have become such big issues. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Digital Futures. And we also have a website, 2SCR.com forward slash Think Digital Futures. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.